Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Slavery's Imperial Skein. We're listening to Jaipur by Indian jazz guitarist Amancio da Silva off of the 1960 album Hamdono, which features Jamaican-born saxophonist Joe Harriet. All of today's music is from da Silva, who was influenced by American jazz guitarists Charlie Christian and Wes Montgomery. While today's conversation centers on slavery's influence during the 40 years from the 1830s to the 1870s, we're going to begin a bit prior to that with a journal entry by Benjamin Banneker, who lived from 1731 to 1806 near Ellicott's Mills, Maryland. In that entry, Banneker recalled a great locust year in 1749, a second in 1766, during which the insects appeared to be full as numerous as the first, and then a third in 1783. He went on to predict that the insects may be expected again in the year 1800, which is 17 since their third appearance to me. Of course, the insects he's speaking of are what we know as the Brood 10 cicadas. As interchange is recorded in Bloomington, Indiana, where cicadas are profuse, these fascinating creatures make an appearance on today's program as an ever-present background sound, a kind of electric undersong to the conversation. Benjamin Banneker was a free African-American almanac author, surveyor, landowner, and farmer who became known for assisting Major Andrew Ellicott in a survey that established the original borders of the District of Columbia. He also corresponded with Thomas Jefferson on the topics of slavery and racial equality. In his new book, Trouble of the World, Slavery and Empire in the Age of Capital, published by the University of North Carolina Press, our guest, Zach Sell, writes that Jefferson envisioned the future U.S. as a white racial ethnostate and was committed to black removal and replacement by whites. As part of that project, the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 served as a place to experiment with his vision of black territorial diffusion to decrease black population density and therefore the possibility of black revolution against slaveholders. Black slavery, black revolution, and black emancipation inform the imaginary of imperialism and white settler colonialism and its aftermath in the 19th century. While Britain outlawed slavery in 1833, slavery set the tone and template for imperial conquest by means of capitalist commodity production. In our show today, we follow the course of plantation ideology as an export. U.S. plantation overseers were sent to India to manage attempts to transform the production of staples by the introduction of Carolina rice and the plantation methodologies of cotton in order to supply Britain with the resources that were embargoed during the U.S. Civil War. We also take a look at colonization projects which created new forms of dispossession and coercion to apply to emancipated former slaves, as well as those of Chinese indentured labor and unemployed Lancashire cotton manufacturers. Even as so many of these projects resulted in failure, the legacy of the slavery imaginary continued to inform the hierarchical visions and violent practices of empire. And now, Slavery's Imperial Scheme with Zach Sell on Interchange on WFHB.
there are lots of histories of slavery, obviously lots of histories of capital. What was missing or what did you think that hadn't been told already? You know, there's so many really kind of like amazing histories of, you know, slavery, colonialism and empire, and particularly in the 19th century. But I think what motivated me to write this book is to try to think about how slavery was embedded in and really part of the global capitalist economy, and also how that embeddedness produced relations, not just within the United States, not just within the North Atlantic world, but far beyond in ways that wouldn't necessarily uh, necessarily occur to, to people immediately. And so I look at connections to South Asia, connections to Australia, and connections to um, the Caribbean as well. And so and I really focus on the mid-19th century, which I see as an explosive era of capitalist crisis, of upheaval, of warfare. I mean, it's a period really between emancipation within the British Empire from 1833 to Black emancipation in the United States in 1863 to 1865. And it tries to address really kind of like a long-standing set of concerns in the field of slavery, capitalism, and empire studies. And that is really how slavery is so embedded within the economy and produces so many forms of meaning in a period when, on the one hand, slavery is collapsing. And on the other hand, slavery is dramatically expanding. And so, you know, in this period between 1833 and uh, the American Civil War, 1861 to 1865, um, U.S. slavery really explodes to a vastness hitherto unseen and is propelled forward by the outrush of slavery produced commodities to Britain, to continental Europe and beyond. And Britain, you know, really profited greatly from this outflow and helped finance U.S. slavery while looking toward its empire in different ways to meet the bar that U.S. slavery set. So as slavery produced commodities poured out of the United States, really U.S. slaveholders transformed their profits into slavery expansion. And U.S. slavery in this era really provided both the raw materials for Britain's explosive manufacturing growth and also inspired visions of imperial conquest. And so that's really uh, what's at the heart of the book. And it is a broad tapestry, but I think we sometimes just kind of stop with it as an institution, you know, with it as a form in terms of its effects on black Americans, uh, black uh, people in the world, not just black Americans, but black people in the world. Uh, But then we often don't really talk about the economics of slavery, Mm -hmm. you know, talk about products, talk about commodities, talk about social relations through those commodities. Uh, You know, Britain becomes a manufacturing giant. It's because it has cotton from the U.S., Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Mm -hmm. So tell about how that that becomes that way. I mean, uh, the Britain ends its slavery in a sense, but really it doesn't end its participation in slavery and white supremacy when it does this. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really kind of at the heart of some of the contradictions that really motivated me to um, write this book. And so there is really tremendous and great scholarship on the influence that um, U.S. cotton had on the global economy. And in that work, I'd particularly highlight um, Sven Beckert's Empire of Cotton Mm -hmm. uh, as as really doing a lot of work to trace out just the many meanings of cotton in the global economy, really founded in the United States in some ways, um, and uh, really having implications far beyond, as as he demonstrates. A question and a set of questions that motivated my book is, of course, you know, cotton is such a hugely important commodity in this era that really a factory owner, a British factory owner observes at this uh, in this period at one point that kind of like any plantation that appears on the banks of the Mississippi River creates a new factory in Lancashire. And I think that's a very vivid image to kind of like capture that dynamic and growth. Another vision of this era was put forth by uh, the Black abolitionist Sarah Parker Ramond, who notes that wage laborers in Britain exist almost in virtual relation with um, enslaved people through the production of cotton um, and through kind of like the new sets of economic relations that are pre- 
produced through, you know, the cotton-based industrial revolution. But with that story, you know, very much at, and that history very much at the heart of, of this era, I think it's also interesting and significant. And what I try to draw out in the book in some ways is other histories of commodities that produce relations that reveal different aspects of U.S. slavery's embeddedness within the global economy, and particularly in relation to Britain and its empire. And so I draw upon also histories of indigo cultivation um, and histories of Carolina rice cultivation to demonstrate that, you know, while the history of cotton is is central um, and essential to this history, um, histories of indigo and Carolina rice uh, reveal different aspects and different sets of global connections. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Zach Sell, author of Trouble of the World, Slavery and Empire in the Age of Capital. While U.S. slavery established the template for the production of staples like rice, sugar, and cotton, it also troubled the imperial imaginary. How could the brutal practices of U.S. white settler colonial agriculture be transplanted across Britain's colonial empire in the wake of the U.S. Civil War and Black Emancipation without actual enslavement? So just to further that point a little bit, the history of Carolina rice cultivation is embedded in many ways in the United States during this era. Um, and Carolina rice is in Liverpool and um, London markets seen as kind of the most valuable commodity, um, valuable rice commodity of the era. And so British colonial officials look towards their empire um, in some ways to introduce Carolina rice. Uh, so they ship Carolina rice from the United States to uh, colonial India and seek to introduce its cultivation there. And in some ways, it's a very absurd project given kind of the numbers of varieties of rice staples already being produced in India during this era. But in other ways, I think it also reveals kind of the ways in which U.S. slavery and U.S. slavery produced commodities kind of introduce visions of what the obligations for British colonies ought to be and that commodities such as Carolina Carolina rice ought to be exported to metropolitan Britain and India ought to be meeting um, the demands of metropolitan consumption. And those histories, I think, are are really important and contemporaneous um, with the history of U.S. cotton staples. And I think, you know, help us better understand how it's not simply the production of any given commodity um, and the consumption of any given commodity that makes U.S. slavery um, so dynamic within the global economy, but it's also the types of ways in which U.S. slavery produces imperial ways of looking at the world um, in a hierarchical way that's going to be defined by colonial occupation um, and also racial domination. Um, and I think that's really, really an essential part of the history that I try to sketch out. You know, we turn... I think generally away from Britain in our thinking when we imagine the U.S. dominance on the world stage, mm -hmm. right? And the way in which uh, slavery itself um, produced so much wealth and the U.S. becomes dominant. And we kind of, like, I don't think realized the colonial or imperial dominance of Britain at the time, right? So when you talk about India, a, gi a giant country, right, with an enormous population uh, being a colony and the sort of condescension mm -hmm. and entitlement that comes mm -hmm. through in all these things is also fascinating, right? So to imagine the colony needing to support what metropolitan Britain wants. And that's fascinating. And it's fascinating how it fails, in a lot of ways too, right? I mean, that's a great part of the book also is those those particular visions of transplanting Carolina rice to India. Now, talk a little bit about why it is that anyone would, would sort of value it so highly. I mean, there's this real sense that you can't get better than Carolina rice. You can't get better than uh, U.S. cotton. 
this is the best stuff because it's produced by black people in the U.S., and that's part of its value also. This is like a, a question that I thought often about when working on the project and researching different chapters. And I have to say, you know, here thinking of Marx's writing on commodity fetishism was really mm. helpful to kind of like better understand that in so many ways, certain desires for commodities don't necessarily have a basis in reality itself, but nonetheless have a huge, huge uh, impact and influence. And so uh, Charles Dickens writes about Carolina Rice in this era and tries to kind of like make sense of the demand for it in metropolitan Britain. And he basically says, you know, if individuals in Britain uh, really understood what good rice was, um, they would not necessarily be demanding Carolina rice uh, in the ways that they that they were. But nonetheless, that demand persisted. And I think that that persistence kind of rightly goes towards what you alluded to, which is part of a way in which there's an attachment of demand to uh, U.S. slavery and slavery reproduced commodities is simply exemplifying quality. In the example of um, cotton, it's a little bit different in some ways because of the actual manufacturing process. So U.S. cotton staples were generally easier to work with within um, Britain's factories. And that is um, something that is revealed not only in the era of U.S. slavery, but also in the period of the Civil War when there is an increased exportation of cotton from India to Britain. And during this period, there's really, you know, um, kind of like relentless complaints amongst workers in uh, metropolitan Britain about the quality of um, Indian cotton staples. And there too, of course, there's also an element of colonial hatred and, mm. and racism that needs to be understood as well. There's just actually like poetry about uh, that Lancashire workers produce about how bad they believe surat cottons to be. Um, and it's, it's really quite... Uh, quite remarkable in many ways. Yeah, there's always a denigration, a racial denigration of product. The product mm -hmm. re reveals the poor quality of, of, of racial characteristics producing it. It's time for a break. Once again, here's Amancio da Silva and Joe Harriet with the title track from the 1969 release Hamdono, which translates from the Hindi as Both of Us. Stay with us for more Zach Sell on the Trouble of the World when Interchange returns.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Slavery's Imperial Skeen with author and scholar Zach Sell, whose new book is Trouble of the World. In this segment, we begin to explore how U.S. slavery is translated to other forms of dispossession and violence, as the white plantation overseer cannot resort to the whip as an instrument of production efficiency. The idea of trying to understand the British wish to have an American South in India without dispossession and without slavery Mm -hmm. (laughs) seemed fascinating to me. You can't just overlay a particular U.S. system onto this, and you can't just overlay rice production because you have a U.S. Mm -hmm. planter come in and tell you how the plantation is managed in the U.S. In many ways, I think you're exactly right, is that there are a lot of really grand uh, British imperial visions being produced about colonial transformation, such as within a project that occurs in this era from 1839 to 1849, which relocates 10 plantation overseers. My book returns to that history and it looks at their involvement in the history and uh, the production of cotton on the one hand and also in the production of Carolina rice on the other hand. And you're right to note um, that these projects are disrupted and fail in a variety of reasons. Um, In one moment, one U.S. plantation overseer who uh, ends up dying in India after the first year of his failure says, this is the greatest failure of my entire life was my inability to produce Carolina rice. And It fails on the one hand because um, of the arrogance of these overseers. And on the other hand, it fails also, I would say, because of the disruptions uh, to those projects that are engaged in by uh, smallhold and peasant cultivators themselves um, who disrupt disrupt overseers efforts all of the time, um, much to the frustration of overseers. But even in those breakdowns of those projects, I think one thing I realized is that it's also important, even as those projects in their individual efforts broke down, nonetheless, they were part of a vision for looking at a post-slavery world that drew directly upon techniques, practices, and personnel Uh, associated with slavery in the United States, um, such as overseers and plantation owners. And I think that's, you know, a really important part of the the history of this era to highlight as well. There is one point where I think um, someone expresses like the, the, the benefit of having white buyers, you know, and white overseers and white plantation owners working these agreements of how, you know, how to, how to produce the rice, how to buy the rice, how to sell the rice, et cetera, Mm -hmm. as opposed for, uh, you know, the poor white overseers, overseer who can't uh, bargain with the, you know, the Indian uh, cultivator or the Indian uh, smallholder, or, you know, not having, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like they have to, uh, they denigrate the the person bargaining with them and they denigrate the Indian as a, a thief or cheat or stealer, you know, all mm-hmm. these things, which, and they're, it's so much easier when you're just dealing with a white man. That's exactly the kind of colonial tropes that really are constantly being articulated in this era. And I think that, you know, it's part of kind of like Anglo-Saxon unity through trade, essentially, um, against um, the possibility of South Asian merchants um, having power in trade. And so there's a constant effort to interrupt and disrupt and undercut their, their power. You know, even as they narrate it, they don't seem to understand that another the other party has has interest in the u.s the enslaved person doesn't have interest 
I mean, literally, they have an interest to live and, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. but they don't have transactional interest, uh, exchange interest, uh, money interest. And that seems to escape the, the conception that other parties have transactional rights and interests. I think that this is something that informs not just the visions of colonial bureaucrats, for example, but also uh, really informs the ways in which abolitionists kind of look toward India in this era. And that's a really kind of like other important part of, mm-hmm. of this history, which is that abolitionists draw upon kind of many, many of the things we've already been discussing in some ways and say, you know, if you place uh, kind of like the demographic difference and the relative cheapness of labor in India against the relative ex- you know, expense of labor in the United States through slavery, that India is going to really kind of through labor relations that are being described as free labor, going to, you know, very quickly surpass um, and outstrip U.S. slavery in a variety of ways. But that idea was always structured in relation to a belief that India is going to simply meet the demands of kind of metropolitan Britain in every way. And I think the kind of introduction and adherence to that belief is, like you said, I think filled with a great degree of hubris Mm -hmm. to imagine that, for example, in many of the instances for why communities and smallhold cultivators really resisted introducing new staples is that that produced forms of defense of dependence that um, often uh, exposed producers to the possibilities of famine and the failure of crops, which, you know, experimental crops so often fail. And so why would individuals pursue that? Or why would communities pursue that given the uh, real possibility for disaster to unfold, Mm -hmm. um, which it does happen often in this era as well. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Zach Sell, author of Trouble of the World, Slavery and Empire in the Age of Capital. While U.S. slavery established the template for the production of staples like rice, sugar, and cotton, it also troubled the imperial imaginary. How could the brutal practices of U.S. white settler colonial agriculture be transplanted across Britain's colonial empire in the wake of the U.S. Civil War and Black Emancipation without actual enslavement? In trying to look at these relations of production and consumption, you know, these vast uh, spaces of farms and land uh, for agricultural use are producing things for sale or producing raw materials, not things that sustain life or anything like that. So people within those those spheres of production that have to labor to create these raw materials aren't producing anything that would sustain them or anyone else. Uh, They're just producing uh, money, I guess, you know, something that makes money so that some people have money and others then don't. The value of the commodity in in metropolitan Britain or the value of the commodity in the capitalist system to make profit outstrips the person's need Mm -hmm. to sustain life. Yeah, and I think I think here too. One thing I try to track um, in the book, in addition to, or just highlight in the book, in addition to the kind of colonial projects and plantation projects of overseers, colonial bureaucrats, and U.S. slaveholders, is the ways in which there are kind of like these really um, profound moments of resistance that emerge in the archives. And I think one of those instances, um, which gets to some of the points we've been discussing, is this moment um, when a U.S. plantation overseer in North India is demanding the production of cotton in dialogue with smallhold cultivator and the cultivator says to him essentially 
we're poor, essentially, is what he says. And nonetheless, like you have no power over us. And it's really what Rom wants is what will occur. And and what you say is something that really has no influence on us. And it's such a profound moment of resistance uh, that's articulated in a way that's indirect to the overseer, but nonetheless is of deep, deep frustration to him. Um, and I think it's, it's moments like that that I think highlight the ways in which um, individuals and communities resist these projects as well as much grander histories of emancipation and upheaval which unfold in this era of course right i think you all also detail it may be the same instance where the the overseer then slaps or hits the person and and then the, basically the rest of the the people that are supposed to be work sort of leave, leave the plantation um as a result of that mm-hmm. particular act this is a production of a mindset too right this is a production of human intellection in a slavery world right so if you're mm-hmm. a u.s slaveholder, you certainly have a particular view of the world and humanity and and who has value and who doesn't and who should work and who shouldn't. And it's just kind of interesting to kind of watch as as these conceptions of what kind of laborers is, or even experiments about laborers, right? Is the slave laborer mm-hmm. better than the, than the or coolie, quote unquote coolie, which, you know, is basically a derogatory term, but also something mm-hmm. of a historical day laborer. It's weird again, and it may be just because it's not so explicit that it's not clear that the violence of U.S. slavery is a massive part of the production. You know, in this era that's unfolding in the aftermath of and in the process of emancipation within the British Empire, there are also elaborations of really huge new forms of coerced labor and violence. And so that question of kind of dispossession and, you know, the dispossession of um, Indians in particular is exactly a huge project that's unfolding both within the subcontinent and also through indentured labor. Um, and so, you know, that's a huge, huge part of, of the story is that there are, you know, these new projects of dispossession that are constantly being put forth and um, articulated in this so-called era and age of emancipation. And that's just, you know, so important to really focus on and understand. And they converge in ways, too, that one wouldn't necessarily expect. So, Later in the book, I focus on colonial projects in British Honduras um, in Central America. And there, just the arc of convergences is really striking and I think reveals a lot of the contradictions of this era. And so in the early 1860s through the 1860s, essentially, what unfolds is that landholding companies are looking at ways in which to basically colonize um, and settle British Honduras for the purpose of increasing the value of land and plantation development. And so those interests first um, turn toward Asian indentured labor, and then in the process of Black emancipation in the United States, begin to look toward the possible uh, resettlement and relocation of formerly enslaved people to British Honduras, essentially to settle and establish um, export sugar cultivation, ultimately. Um, And when Uh, formerly enslaved people ultimately refuse um, to relocate to British Honduras. And as these projects fall apart, there's a return towards Asian indentured labor. The first ship of and really only ship in this era of Chinese laborers who arrive in the colony um, arrives in 1865. The experience of those laborers is brutal in the extreme. Um, after the first year, over 100 Asian indent- Chinese indentured laborers have died. And in addition, like in the aftermath of, the, of widespread death, many more um, escape 
plantations to join with uh, the Santa Cruz Maya who are engaged in an ongoing border conflict with the British. And in response to those forms of resistance, essentially, um, as well as in relation to desires to uh, continue to settle and colonize, there's a turn towards recruiting the emigration of former Confederates, essentially U.S. slaveholders, those directly involved both in rebellion and warfare in the United States and also in plantation production. And so um, after some of those recruitment projects succeed, other uh, instances of former U.S. slaveholders managing plantations uh, worked by Chinese indentured laborers in British Honduras. And I think those histories really reveal the ways in which Black emancipation in the United States, Asian indentured labor, capitalist transformation, colonization projects all really need to be seen as part of a broad global history. Um, And so often, I think histories such as this are missed because of the organizing frame in history writing according to, you know, whether it be discrete nation states, discrete empires, or even commodity histories. But so often, in fact, those frames also limit our understanding of of histories such as this. It's time for another break, and another from Amancio da Silva. This is Ganges, from his first album, Integration. Stay with us for more of Slavery's Imperial Skeen when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. In this segment of my conversation with Zach Sell about his book, Trouble of the World, we'll take a look at colonization projects like those in the British Honduras, supported by Honest Abe, that great emancipator. And then we'll see how the importation of Chinese labor further exposes the violence and fraud of capitalist labor. We did a show with uh, Nan Instead on tobacco. That book moved to China as well, or tried to tried to push uh, Jim Crow rules and laws into the the space of China, which they were trying to cultivate uh, tobacco in that space as well. Uh, so, um, you know, those things are interesting, obviously, but they they do sort of allow you to see that you know nations, while they do have to contend with each other. I mean, that's a that's a part of this as well, mm-hmm. right? Trying to have to maneuver mm-hmm. as nations, but that the capital itself moves around uh, globally within and 
through those nations and those bodies uh, and those productions and commodities. I'm glad you brought that particular situation up in the British Honduras because it, it was fascinating for how it kind of encapsulated everything uh, and the idea of uh, colonization and how it tied to to the U.S. and uh, emancipation because the idea that, you know, uh, Lincoln was our great emancipator is, you know, a troubled concept, obviously, mm-hmm. as, a, as a president who really wanted to get rid of black people, get rid of the problem, <laughs> the, mm-hmm. get rid of the cause of the war, mm-hmm. not the South Southern, you know, plantation uh, slaveholders, but the, the black people themselves. There had been a colonization project since the early mm-hmm. 19th century, but that colonization was, a, was one of Lincoln's hopes, I guess, or ideas to, to try to support Absolutely. colonization projects, and this was one of them. Uh, and one of the project people in British Honduras met with the president a couple of times and maybe a secretary of state here and there as well, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, just further on that point, um, which is so important to understand, is the disruption of an interruption of colonization projects um, as supported by Lincoln, I think, again, really enhances the way that one understands how um, enslaved people themselves um, really shaped the course of the war and transformed it, uh, the Civil War, and transformed it into a war for, on the one hand, Black emancipation, and also resisted in, you know, so many different ways, uh, colonization projects and undermined their success. And so, you know, it's again, a way in which looking at the history from below through the kind of determined activities of enslaved people themselves helps us better understand why, even as Lincoln may have so long adhered to uh, beliefs in colonization, that such beliefs were nonetheless interrupted and disrupted. It really, I think, gives uh, greater texture to the real tremendous and and I'll say revolutionary character of, of black emancipation in the United States, which which can't be lost sight of. So the move away from colonization projects happened because it's clear that black people were necessary for the war effort, right? So without without black soldiers, without removing black uh, laborers from the South who were actually, you know, making the South have the ability to fight at all through their labor, through their production, Without removing that from the the equation, it's likely, highly likely that the South would have defeated the North. So it was it was clear that one moves away from getting rid of the black people to making use of them. And then I think you quote something in there. I think from a union organizer or somebody you know in unionizing who said mm-hmm. something to the effect that you know it was great to get the black soldier involved because not only were they helping win the war, but they were also you know dying. As we study these things, the clarity of racial views of all Americans, all people in the United States, come to focus, right? The clarity that black people weren't welcome in the North either comes into focus also. Black people at the time wanting land, needing land, right, to have, have something of their own, and also needing really to be away from white people. You know, so those things are all in this book as well. And, you know, that's that's part of the issue with the failure of Thaddeus Stevens' plan uh, of 40 acres of public lands uh, or of, of, of actually um, these slave plantations. They were going to uh, take the slave plantations and, and, and I think Stevens wanted to give them away to slave, uh, formerly uh, enslaved people. This never worked out, obviously, uh, and really was the death now for equality, I suppose you would say. Um, you know, trying to untangle a lot of what happens there with emancipation turns out to be a continuation of white supremacy through property, right, through land ownership. And, you know, the Civil War wasn't really won for emancipation. Uh, black people at the time were mm-hmm. not giving any, anything close to the, the promises that the 
you know, white supremacists who, you know, reneged on all promises to the Native Americans made to them as well. At one point, um, a Republican official who's quite involved in, and really centrally involved in projects to see if to redistribute land to formerly enslaved people, George Washington Julian. Julian says very explicitly at one point that this rebellion, talking about the um, Civil War and the Confederate Rebellion, um, has frequently and very justly been styled a slaveholder's rebellion. It is likewise a landholder's rebellion, for the chief owners of slaves have been the chief owners of land. And I think that framing really helps better understand the ways in which the projects of dispossession that slaveholders articulated through land in the post-Civil War era in the Reconstruction period, and of course, especially after, um, were in some ways at the heart of the Civil War itself. And, uh, you know, sketches for post-slavery Black dispossession were outlined through the foreclosure of land distribution for formerly enslaved people. And that that foreclosure had devastating consequences and was also, again, you know, really articulated and emerged not just in the immediate context of the Southern United States, but beyond as well. I mean, there's, you know, kind of like fascinating um, and important connections here uh, to projects to relocate European immigrants to Texas, for example, and to Louisiana to do the work um, that perhaps formerly enslaved people might perform. And those projects are all about, you know, questions of race, colonization, and land. There are individuals in this period and former slaveholders in this period um, who are really invested in trying to transform the southern United States into a white man's country of systematic white resettlement and black dispossession. And others, who are invested in the kind of perpetuation of a post-slavery plantation form. And those dynamics unfold with real and devastating consequences for formerly enslaved people. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Zach Sell, author of Trouble of the World, Slavery and Empire in the Age of Capital. While U.S. slavery established the template for the production of staples like rice, sugar, and cotton, it also troubled the imperial imaginary. How could the brutal practices of U.S. white settler colonial agriculture be transplanted across Britain's colonial empire in the wake of the U.S. Civil War and black emancipation without actual enslavement? Noting uh, the white ethno state idea, you know, in Texas, uh, there's a you tell a story of that that particular uh, person who wanted to remake Texas in the in the fashion of the the white ethno state, as well as uh, you, so it's a parallel with the the story you tell of Queensland in Australia mm-hmm. as well, which uh, again seems to be an idea of recruiting white. Uh, laborers, white uh, out-of-work factory workers in, in Lancashire, mm-hmm. Lancashire, mm-hmm. Um, Lancashire, yeah, <laughs> yeah, la- the Lancashire textile, you know, factory workers who are out of work to move to Queensland and and you know be laborers there and and help form a you know after the Aboriginal people are dispossessed of that land and treated mm-hmm. uh, horribly as well to turn that into a, a white ethno state. These are similar projects, right? To sort of uh, the interest in creating a a, a white laborer force, but that are still beholden to capital ideas of labor production. There's this throughout the the book and throughout this history as well as the creation of the poor white, right, is here also. Mm -hmm. The idea that a a white person won't labor because the white person has seen the black person labor, the slave labor. Yeah. And I think here, you know, there's so many layers of connection, but there's a few general points that really um, 
tried to um, express in towards the end of the book, particularly, but it's that, you know, capitalist projects are colonial projects and colonial projects are racial projects mm. and capitalist projects are racial projects as well. Right. And you see this all unfold kind of in these efforts to recruit laborers first to Queensland, Australia, and then kind of as inspired by those efforts in Texas as well. And so, you know that in the midst of the Lancashire cotton famine, um, there's a huge effort to relocate unemployed factory workers to settle in Queensland, Australia. And the immigration official most responsible for this is Henry Jordan. Uh, Henry Jordan sees the relocation of uh, unemployed white factory owners as possibly uh, being able to create a white man's country in Queensland, Australia. But he receives a lot of um, resistance from others who are invested in creating really like a sugar plantation colony um, dependent upon South Pacific Island labor um, in the era. And ultimately, those plantation interests um, succeed and Jordan's vision of kind of the systematic colonization of white factory owners in Queensland is is disrupted and interrupted. And one of the reasons that it's actually interrupted and disrupted is because Lancashire factory owners themselves see, you know, state-supported plans to support white unemployed factory worker immigration is ultimately having an effect of possibly increasing the cost of wages. And so there's all of these mm. debates um, within records about how exactly wages will be Im impacted by such schemes. Um, but then those same projects inspire some of the kind of like theorists of plantation slavery in the United States and here particularly uh, Thomas Affleck. And so Affleck is for scholars of U.S. slavery, really well known for the production of journals for plantation management that enable the kind of more systematic and scientific management of plantations. After the Civil War, Affleck really turns towards being invested in trying to create a white man's country in Texas, where he's based. Um, Affleck, originally from Scotland, looks towards recruiting uh, laborers from Scotland who he believes will settle and uh, perform work in in kind of like a meaningful way. Um, it's that investment that I think is really important and, and profound. And for Affleck, he's most ultimately invested in this era in white supremacist view of the post-slavery South with the capitalist and productive dimensions, I think, as, uh, you know, kind of of secondary significance. And I think those moments really, they make us think again about the ways in which white supremacy is not simply a product of the economy, um, but has often an influence that goes beyond uh, any any kind of like rationally organized idea of capitalism. It's time for our final break. Here's another from the Indian jazz guitarist Amancio da Silva. This is the title track to the 1969 release, Integration. More on slavery and empire in the age of capital with Zach Sell when Interchange returns. Stay with us.
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. Our show today looks at the way slavery has underwritten the very conception of all subsequent Western imperial expansion. In this segment, we discuss the Lancashire cotton famine and the ways unemployment for British workers was treated as the equivalent of starvation and death for so-called colonial subjects in India. There are a couple of times when uh, when white supremacy uh, wins out over capitalism, not to its success, but that the you know, the choices made were white supremacist choices, not capitalist, you know, not uh, cheapest mm-hmm. labor choices or anything like that. They were clearly white supremacist projects that also you know didn't go anywhere, but as you say, show the the ideological push that kind of is all, always underwriting. And there is a, there is that tension throughout the sort of white supremacist tension against the capitalist rationality, uh, which is about just profit and expanding those profits and expanding the way you make those profits and then trying to introduce particular kind of social relations that don't necessarily adhere to that kind of production, that kind of capitalist idea is an interesting tension. The white supremacist tension isn't there in the U.S. because it's it's clear that capitalism is white supremacist. But mm-hmm. when you try to export that idea, those particular capitalist ideas that are also white supremacist don't translate to the labor force in India or the labor force from China. You know, a couple of things that complicate our, our imagination, I guess, of the period are, and you've already touched on it a little bit, are some of the abolitionist ideas here who, who sort of mm-hmm. look to the idea of free trade as a thing that would abolish slavery. Now, again, free trade is a misnomer. You know, there's no free mm-hmm. labor that we're dealing with, and the, and the labor they call free is, you know, coarse labor as well. And they don't consider you know, how the shift affects, would affect a different labor force. You know, they're like, oh, if we do it this way, it'll force the abolition of slavery. It's not caring about equality. It's something else entirely. Yeah, that's such an important point. And I think here, you know, um, there's so much to say about about how um, free trade rhetoric and ideas really structure and inform this era. But I think that one thing that really stood out to me upon, you know, a, a little bit further reflection is that um, the embrace of free trade as producing emancipation was also an embrace that the capitalism was going to produce the end of slavery rather than the immediate political end of slavery as producing a transformation of capitalism. And that idea of kind of like emancipation through free trade, that is, uh, you know, reduced tariff policies um, so that all of the world is placed on an even uh, and of course, this is, you know, in so many ways, not the case, but placed upon an even playing field will ultimately lead to the labor of enslaved people, which was perceived as most expensive, being driven out of the market, you know, and essentially produce emancipation. And that belief really had, I would say, a lot of, of devastating consequences. Um, some of the major tariff reduction policies passed in this era are, you know, simultaneously towards the benefit of U.S. slaveholders and British manufacturers. And so there's this kind of mutual belief 
that free trade is going to support slaveholders and manufacturers. And similarly, as as one sees, um, the advocacy for free trade in sugar led to, you know, facilitating the boom and expansive demand for like Cuban slavery produced sugar in Britain. And so these are all elements of his history that I think really um, force a different consideration of how slavery in general and in the 19th century and U.S. slavery in particular in the 19th century were uh, very much embedded in uh, not just American capitalism, but really within global capitalism. Yeah, I wanted to go back to the Lancashire cotton famine in in first recognizing uh, the relation between India and uh, uh, Britain as a consumer of goods. And so, you know, we mm-hmm. should start start there if you can in terms of that relationship. India matters for Britain because it's a consumer of goods exactly. as well. So let's start there. The outbreak of famine in India's northwestern provinces in 1860 has a huge impact upon um, manufacturing in metropolitan Britain. India's northwestern provinces is really at the heart of this famine is also one of the largest um, consumers of uh, British manufactured textile goods. And so as demand for textile goods is disrupted uh, by the famine, um, you really start to see the manifestation of of crisis in metropolitan Britain. Factory owners are quite um, explicit about this. But this occurs really, um, you know, uh, just before um, the, uh, you know, outbreak of the Civil War and the blockade of um, of Confederate uh, ports, which results in the interruption of um, cotton exports from the southern United States to Britain. There's a really deep capitalist crisis of this era, um, but that crisis is is known as the Lancashire cotton famine, and it makes this kind of um, really, really perverse set of equivalences that are um, put forth throughout this era, which is that Lancashire workers suffering from unemployment due to the absence of U.S. slavery-produced cotton are suffering from famine, a famine that in some ways is equivalent to actual death from starvation, as is occurring in the northwestern provinces in India. And these equivalences have real and false equivalences have real meaning um, in, in many different ways. In one way, famine relief funds gathered for or collected for individuals in India's northwestern provinces are transferred to uh, Lancashire for the Lancashire famine relief. Um, and it's it's really striking and chilling, I would say, to see the ways that that transfer occurs. But at the same time, additionally, as cotton exports from India increase in greater volume, uh, cotton that was once used in textile handloom production in North India and in India's northwestern provinces also um, increases in expense as it is being exported in greater volumes. And so there's kind of a double uh, set of violences that unfold in North India in this era. And that I really think are often overlooked in understanding this crisis. Um, Sometimes it's rendered as the world's first raw materials crisis. But as I think the history that I just outlined does much to demonstrate, the crisis goes far, far beyond cotton and raw materials alone and really is a a capitalist crisis and, and needs to be seen as such. Right. And a crisis for people. Who, who, exactly. Who can't exactly who, who die? Who die of famine? You know, who die of starvation? 
This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Zach Sell, author of Trouble of the World, Slavery and Empire in the Age of Capital. While U.S. slavery established the template for the production of staples like rice, sugar, and cotton, it also troubled the imperial imaginary. How could the brutal practices of U.S. white settler colonial agriculture be transplanted across Britain's colonial empire in the wake of the U.S. Civil War and Black Emancipation without actual enslavement? The equivalencies you point out are that, you know, Lancashire workers being out of work, having to tighten their belts, etc. You even point to a particular, like, study of the period during the period, which, uh, you know, tried to study the effects of this particular time on that laborer, the Lancashire uh, worker, uh, that actually is that's probable their health improved. One element of that study is also that the... Um, person conducting it is is doing a little bit to minimize the sufferings of unemployed workers. But nonetheless, uh, the difference is is huge uh, between real suffering from unemployment and right. actual death from starvation. And that these very different but connected phenomenon within the same crisis are rendered equivalent through the language of famine and described as kindred distress in this era, I think is is of great importance. Yeah, and I wanted to point out there's a, an image on 108, the hunted slaves from 1861, which um, you know has uh, underneath uh, the caption, uh, this painting of an enslaved woman and man escaping slavery in the Great Dismal Swamp of North Carolina was purchased by the Liverpool banker Gilbert W. Moss, with all proceeds going to the Lancashire Famine Relief Fund to support unemployed Lancashire factory workers. In January 1836, the Moss family received over 40,000 pounds in compensation for claims made on 805 enslaved people. In that one painting is almost everything. Right in exactly. in, the, in the history of that painting, in the history of who bought the painting, in the history of what the you know money was used for, in the history of that person's money, right? right. It's exactly. All, it's all in that painting. Exactly, and this is such a prominent painting in depictions of maroon communities and enslaved people's resistance and fugitivity. Mm-hmm. Um, that to kind of know that backstory of its connection um, to actually you know a rendering of enslaved people struggling for their freedom uh, being. You know, purchased by someone whose family received compensation uh, for slaveholding in the British Empire, and then the proceeds, as you know, going to support unemployed Lancashire factory workers, I think says so much about, on the one hand, how worlds of slavery and empire were deeply interconnected, um, but also very hierarchically differentiated. And so I'm, I'm really uh, happy that you drew out that painting because I, I too agree that it, it contains so much about the entire book within it, in fact. It really does. Like It's like you wrote the book around that painting. I was actually in one earlier iteration that was how the book began was with this painting and and I liked it but it was a little bit easy to get too far uh, far into an- analyzing the painting right, so right, right. I decided to, to move it but yeah right right well you know what I love so much the linguistic um, ironies so like you noted the one ship that went to uh, British Honduras with uh, Chinese indentured laborers was called light of the age. You just can't make that up, man. In addition, is that a very similar ship, a ship with the same name, and it could be the same ship, but I was never quite able to figure it out, um, despite doing a fair amount of of effort, is that travels to 
Queensland in this era is called the Light of the Age as well, mm. um, and likely was the same ship. And so that these same ships are moving in this way is really fascinating. Too. Wow, it's too liberal, right? I, th- I guess mm-hmm. that's the you know we're confronting this this particular situation, you know, the liberalization of of this particular global world order and our confusion mm-hmm. here about what liberal means. There's there's liberalism in the in the name of that ship. Exactly. And that, you know, I think in so many ways, the the resonances with um, present contradictions is the same because, you know, this is really an era for the new and dramatic and expansive articulation of liberalism with all of its concomitant forms of racial, colonial, and capitalist violence. And so I think that those histories unfold, though, in ways that bring new sets of relations and new connections between places that may have otherwise seemed either differently connected or disparate from one another. And so I think it is in some ways a a history of mid-19th century liberalism. That's our show. Here's one final offering from Amancio da Silva. This is Cry Free, another off of integration. Thanks to Zach Sell for joining us to discuss his wonderful book, Trouble of the World, published by the University of North Carolina Press. And thank you, Brood 10 Cicadas, for joining us as well. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.